and welcome back to the Plan A podcast, the podcast for people picking independent parenthood as their Plan A. I am your host, Aiden. I am really excited for this episode today. I know that when I started this journey, kind of the biggest anxiety that I had was around how to pick a sperm donor. Um, which bank to use, how to know that you're picking a sperm bank that's reputable, who to pick, what what criteria to keep in mind, what do you have to do before you pick a donor, all of those things. Um, how do I make sure that my child will get information about the donor and that information will be accurate? Um, so I've hopefully done the research so you don't have to. I evaluated all of the major sperm banks in the U.S. And the one that I decided to go with is Seattle Sperm Bank. Um, They're based in Seattle, but you can use them all across the states and all across, across the world. So today we are going to be talking to Angelo, the general manager of the Seattle Sperm Bank. And he will tell us a bit more about sort of why you would pick Seattle over a different clinic and um, what to keep in mind when you're picking a donor and just sort of all of the fears and questions around donor selection um, and what things mean. So I hope that you guys enjoy it. I hope that it is useful. I found it incredibly interesting. So without further ado, here is Angelo. Angelo, thank you so much for being a guest on the Plan A podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. I think this is going to be such a valuable conversation for people. Um, Just to kick us off, would you mind giving the listeners a little introduction to who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm So my name is Angelo Allard, and I'm the general manager at Seattle Sperm Bank. And uh, my role here at the company is everything from uh, staff training, management, and delegation um, to compliance, international distribution, and allocation. Uh, I, I wear all the hats here. That's so cool. And just in case people aren't familiar with the Seattle Sperm Bank itself, um, would you give us a little bit of sort of a history for? For the sperm bank and yeah. kind of how you differentiate from the other the other ones in the around the world. Sure. So uh, Seattle Sperm Bank opened up in 2008. Uh, I joined the company in 2010 and then became general manager in 2012. Um, at that time, we were a company of one location and three or four employees. And since 2012, we've grown to five locations and about 50 employees. Um, and what kind of makes us different, um, not kind of, what I would say what really makes us different from the other sperm banks uh, around the U.S. or around the world is that um, we believe in not only helping people uh, have babies all around the world, but most importantly, have happy, healthy babies all around the world. And so we take our screening and testing and genetic testing and family history, um, um, all, all the things a part of our screening very, very seriously, as well as, you know, we're kind of more of a boutique approach in that we actually know our donors. So when you talk to our client services team, uh, team members, you'll you'll see that they actually know the donors. They're not just reading off the, the profile information that anybody could read off of. Um, and, you know, we, we also take our vial quality very, very seriously. Um, we have less than one in 1,000 vials um, that we get a quality complaint form on. So we, we take... Those are, I would say those three things primarily, the, the screening, testing, the vial quality, and the knowledge that we have about our donors really sets us apart. Yeah. And so I think I've mentioned this on released podcast episodes already, but so for the listeners, um, I've decided to use the Seattle Sperm Bank for my donor sperm, essentially for those reasons that it is um, a scarily unregulated industry in this country. And when you start reading about some of the other sperm banks that are out there, you just immediately start finding lawsuit after lawsuit, sort of issue after issue, Um, everything to do with uh, vial quality and weird things that have been included in vials to issues with donors that they haven't screened properly and 
Um, Seattle Sperm Bank is one of the only ones when you go on websites like the Donor Sibling Registry, um, which offers a lot of support for uh, donor-conceived people. Seattle Sperm Bank is one of the only ones that they actually recommend in the United States, um, sort of for that reason, because it is the one of the most transparent. Um, and it's very selective, right? I think what was the, I read on your website, but I'll botch this now, so I'll let you do it. It's, sure. it's one in how many donors that you um, yeah, it's not get included. Yeah, it's about nine out of every thousand applicants. So out of every thousand potential donor applications that come into our um, come into our universe, only nine of those are going to get approved uh, and make it into the program. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So you can really feel like you've been like you and your child are safe if you use the Seattle Sperm Bank. I think um, they they're definitely doing do have the right approach to it. Um, with that being said, where do you guys get your donors? Do you recruit? Do most people come to you? How does somebody get into the program? Great question. So like I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that we have five locations, uh, four of which are here on kind of on the western side of the United States. And so uh, in Seattle, Bellevue, uh, in, both in Washington State, and then Tempe, Arizona, and La Jolla, California. Uh, all of our locations are fairly close to the universities in those respective cities. And so a lot of our recruitment comes from the universities, um, whether that's advertising in university classifieds or student newsletters or going to, um, you know, special interest groups or ethnicity clubs, things like that on campus. That's a big part of our recruitment, as well as, you know, advertising on social media, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and then even advertising on, you know, kind of classifieds for part-time jobs, because really this is, you know, as, as interesting or maybe as silly as it might sound, it, it really is kind of like a part-time job for these donors having to travel to, um, you know, perform an activity and then get compensated for that activity. So um, it is, you know, we, we will we'll also recruit from uh, classifieds for people looking for part-time jobs as well. But, you know, in, in the end, our screening and our filter criteria about who gets into the program, uh, we see that the, the most successful recruitment comes actually from donors referring other donors. Um, oh, that's awesome. Because they, you know, those donors who have made it into the process, uh, they understand and can communicate to, if you can imagine being a potential donor and seeing, having all these maybe misconceptions about what it's like to be a donor. Yeah. So when you have somebody who's already in the program who can refer a donor and kind of give them the uh, 411 on what it's like to be a donor, Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's very successful. And that's that's our best recruitment tool. It's just also our least utilized tool because some donors don't like to talk about the, the fact that they're a donor. Yeah, it's interesting how much, um, I don't know if stigma is the right word, but I guess stigma is sort of still out there around. For lack of a better term, sure, yeah. Yeah, becoming a, a sperm donor. So, you know, it's such a great gift to to give to people. It's I think a lot of that, unfortunately, comes from Hollywood still sensationalizing using sperm donors and whatnot and all these different things. People totally agree. <laughs> people's minds always jump to the worst. That's I'm, one of the first questions I get from people when I'm telling them I'm about to do this is they're like, aren't you afraid your sperm donor is going to have like 500 kids? I'm like, no, that's I don't. I don't live in a, you know, <laughs> CW TV show. I'm not concerned about that. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, and for us too. I mean, just for the listeners who um, might be interested, you know, our our policy is that we limit it to 25 families in the United States, and then we follow all other country-specific guidelines or, or or legislation. And you know, as you mentioned, the U.S. is one of the only major countries in the world that has this very loosely regulated industry of gamete donation, be it egg or sperm. Mm -hmm. um, the legislation that exists in the United States is really just around that of stopping the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. Uh, and, and and screen and you know we screen and test those things out, but there's really no legislation on uh, how many families a donor can be used by, what information has to be present, et cetera. That being said, there's several other countries around the world that actually have government-regulated, legislated family limits. Um, for example, in the in the UK, it's 10 families. In Australia, it's either five or 10 families, depending on what state you're in, um, and so on. Yeah, and I think that's so that's so comforting for people to know just that it's something that you guys track that's required. If you're going to use your services, you have to register your live births so that you can keep track of that. Correct. That's right. That's right. 
Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about what, um, what exactly you screen the donors for and sort of how you make sure that the information that you're, they're providing to you is correct? Yeah. So when a donor first enters the program, you know, their first step is just to do an initial semen analysis. And that, you know, 90% of the applicants are going to be screened out just based on their semen quality. They might be a normal, healthy, uh, rep uh, you know, reproductive capabilities. Um, but to get into the program, because their specimens are going to go through a uh, counting and washing and freezing and thawing process, you know, the donor has to have quite a bit more modal cells than the normal, what the World Health Organization defines as a normal healthy male. Yep. And so right away, we're going to screen out a bunch of, you know, like I said, 90% of the applicants are going to be screened out just on their overall semen quality. At the next step of the process, if they make it past the first step, they're going to come in and they're going to meet with our donor coordinator and they're going to go over what it's like to be a donor in our program. They're going to learn everything about the program. They're going to go over the consent documents. They're going to learn about what testing and screening is required of them. They're going to give their family medical history. They're going to provide their transcripts. If, you know, if they say that they're a, a, a lawyer or a doctor or have their PhD, we're going to verify those things. We also do a, a criminal background check and address verification check um, to make sure, you know, and, and with along with that, we also thus have their social security number. By yeah. having a social security number, we can always trace these donors, so they're never going to disappear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, they can't just run off. That's right. And you know, but because our program, you know, is an open ID program, it also an open ID only, right? There's no yeah. anonymous donors on our catalog. So even though the donors are technically anonymous up until the point that any donor children are age 18, it by having an open ID only program, it changes for lack of a better term, the caliber of donor that yes. comes into our program. And so it's they're not just here to to make some additional spending money, even though I'm sure that's you know one of the motivations for many of the donors. They, they understand right from the get-go, even before they are being, like this information is presented to them even before they are compensated, that you're going to be, you know, there's an opportunity that you will be contacted by a donor child at age 18. And they likely so they, will, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. They, and they, they know that's be. part of it. And so they get to make that decision before they're even compensated. Like, do I want to be in this program? And at that point, you know, we filter, you know, we do filter some more donors out, whether it was on the family medical history or the background check or the transcript check or the, the fact that they're not comfortable with open ID or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So now we've gone from 90% being screened out of the first one to maybe 97% being screened out after the second appointment. So now we're left with 3% of the donor pool. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then we get into the genetic testing and the infectious disease testing and the physical exam and meeting with our medical director and doing the counseling with our masters in social work to make sure that they fully understand the implications of being a donor, what that means for them now, what that could mean for them 18 years from now, right? So they they get an incredible amount of information and they're educated and counseled on that information and they get to make a very, very informed decision on whether they want to be in the program or not. And then you add that to all the screening and testing that happens and by the time they're in the program, they, they might not want to be anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's so important because it's like you said, your, your approach is not just helping people create, um, create a family. It's help, helping those kids to be happy, healthy kids. And that's I think right. studies that over and over have shown that being able, kids being able to fit, find out where they come from and have that information. And then to, to know when they do reach out to that donor, it's not going to be some big traumatic experience for them. That's right. It's really important. I agree. 100%. Um, do you want to explain a little bit, just in case people don't know, what's what the difference between a known donor and an open ID donor oh, is? Oh, sure. So an open ID donor is not necessarily a recognized term by the FDA. So, you know, what I said, you know, we have to be in compliance with the U.S. regulations and legislation. Uh, the FDA's legislation or regulation 1271 is which governs sperm banks. And in that regulation, you know, you're not going to find any terminology or uh, for open ID donors. What you're going to see is anonymous, um, client depositor, and directed donors. Okay, in a directed donor or known donor, depending on you know, depending on the screening and testing that they undergo, those donors are donors that are known to the recipient, and they are going to be only used for that one recipient uh, or, that, or that one family of recipients, okay? Yeah, that's uh, your your friend who's like, hey, I can help you out. I'll have right. to donate. It's somebody that you know personally. Right. That's right, and the FDA allows for that, and they even allow some exemptions for that in comparison to the anonymous donors. 
Um, now, an open ID donor, our program is open ID, but technically under the FDA's definition and classification, they are anonymous donors in that at the time of using the specimen to achieve pregnancy, you don't have the identifying information. You have a lot of information on there, but you don't have the identifying information of the donor and vice versa. They don't have the identifying information about the recipient or recipients. That is how the FDA is defining anonymous. Yep. Even though our donors are open ID, they are anonymous donors and there's no identifying information be presented to the recipients or the children until the donor child reaches age 18. Yep. And uh, so it's kind of in between, essentially. So your your kids, you do provide some information. A lot. For, I mean, yeah, I'm, it's actually a lot. If you want to talk about that a bit, what they get before they're 18. Oh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I would say to wrap it up in a, a too long didn't read version, most people would find that the information that we provide about the donors allows them to know more about the donor than they do maybe even about themselves and or their partner if they have. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so, you know, it's everything from, you know, an extended donor profile, which is a 20 to 40 page document, depending on how long the answers are for the, from the donor, uh, where it goes over, the, over their education, their family history, their, their desires, their passions, their hobbies, their talents, their interests. Um, and then there's an audio interview, which you, you get an opportunity to hear from the donor, um, hear what they sound like, get a glimpse of their personality. There's also a personality uh, assessment uh, it's called the Kearsey Temperament Sorter. It's kind of like a Myers-Briggs uh, on steroids. It allows you to you know, get a feel for what the donors like in their personality and in their daily lives. Um, and then there's a staff impression that's written by our client services team members. Uh, and then there's the genetic testing results, which you can download and, and view at any point in time. So there's just an incredible amount of information. That's Oh, and childhood photos. And you, so you get to see all the donors a, 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 from ages like, you know, say two to eight, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's what a great thing, to, one, for you to have to be able to make your decisions, but also to be able to ha give to your kids so that they, um, you know, they have something as they're growing up as well before they turn 18. So it's not, it's never some big mystery about where the other, where their gametes came from. No. That's right. Um, so... One thing that really appealed to me about your sperm bank as well, aside from all of that, was uh, your, the donor sibling registry, because yeah. that is also something that's quite rare. Would you explain a bit about what that is and um, the benefits of, of having that? Yeah, so we have our own in-house sibling registry. Um, and the reason why we created our own in-house sibling registry is that we weren't fully comfortable um, with the model that DonorSiblingRegistry.com uses, yeah. in that um, you know anybody, you know any Jane Doe or Sally Smith can go to DonorSiblingRegistry.com and connect with other families of donors, and they don't even necessarily have to have a child from that donor themselves. Yep. And you know, it, it, I think maybe it was just an oversight when they originally started the DonorSiblingRegistry.com, but it hasn't been fixed or updated since its uh, origin. And that's, that's, that's frustrating to us. So we decided to create our own in-house sibling registry and we called it SSB Connects. And what it is, is that after somebody has reported a birth uh, with one of our donors, they can request, if they would like, they can request access to our SSB Connects to be a part of just the group for the donor that they used. So that way- Just that max 25 families. Yep, yep. So that way, the only those family, well, no, in the U.S. There may be more yeah, yeah, around yeah. the world, um, but you know that way, just those families that have used the same donor can connect with one each other because really that's the connection that these people are looking for. And they're not typically looking to connect with some other person who's used another donor. I mean, maybe, maybe they'd be great friends, but that's not the type of connection they're usually searching for. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great to have the option to, if other families are are interested, to allow your kids to have. Um, at least knowledge of each other, but right. also potentially some sort of relationship as they grow up is also great. So they just know like, oh yeah, what, however close that ends up being will be dependent on the families, I'm sure. But just have the option for a kid to know, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got three yeah, half siblings uh, on the East Coast or whatever it might be. Right. And it's totally optional. Like, you know, some people choose not to uh, connect over SSB Connects. Many people actually do. I'd say it's probably 
Um, and it's kind of interesting too that that percentage is different amongst donors, and I don't really have any good theories about that. And maybe a <laughs> another time, but you know, I think some people, you know, there's other. I think families have different motivations for why they sign up for SSP Connects. I think you were describing some of them where, you know, some of them want to can just know how many siblings they might have, or half siblings they might have, or they they want to um, actually connect and, and strike up relationships. And some of them really just want to sign up in case there's any, you know, urgent medical alerts. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, let's say donor 999 has a child who has severe allergies uh, yep. to dairy or to, to peanuts. And sometimes that information is uh, shared quickly to a group that way. And then, of course, it's also going to reach us. But that sometimes that information is more easily shared amongst the families who have connected uh, on those forums. So... You know, we always follow up on that information and send it out and blast it out. But oftentimes they, they really hear, like hearing the personal um, accounts of, you know, what's been going on in that child's life so they can look for those markers in their children's lives. Yep. Yeah, I think there's so many aspects that are reg- de- to completely depend on what level of relationship you want to have with other families who've used the same donor. I think there's just there's something positive for any level of that. Agreed. Get out of it. Totally agreed. And again, I think knowledge is power for your kids as they go, as they grow up as a donor conceived person as well. Just having none of the, not making any part of it um, sort of hidden or a secret or, you know, it just lets them, the more information you you have available to them, kids are going to have varying levels of interest in engaging with that. But as long as it's there for them, you're, you're helping them be able to process it as just a normal part of their lives growing up and not something to, to long over. I suppose. Absolutely. I would say, you know, you could wrap, if you were to wrap up all of our processes under, you know, kind of one umbrella, you know, ignorance is not bliss. And so, yes. we, you know, we kind of, I would say that most of our procedures other than say how we process things in the lab, because that doesn't really apply. It's not really applicable, but every single one of our processes, procedures, systems, activities is under, the, the auspices of ignorance is not bliss. So we're going to do our processes according to that. The more, you know, the more you can do. Yep. Um, so I'm at the point now I've gone through all of my tests with the fertility clinic, um, the baseline tests to make sure I'd be sort of fine doing IUI versus IVF. I've gone through my genetic carrier screening. Yeah. Um, so I know, what I need for all of that, I guess when, when you get to the place where you're really ready to, you know, make your order, I've got my favorites on my (laughs) website now for the donors I'm considering. Um, What, what advice would you give to women when they're trying to actually pick a donor? What, what should we keep in mind when you're picking a donor, I suppose? Cause it does, it feels a bit like shopping and then you're like, I don't know, what do I need? What are the specifications? No, this is, this is the ultimate question for those that are currently in search of or have searched for their donor sperm, right? So man, where to start? Uh, I (laughs) I would say the most important thing is to keep in mind what it is that you're utilizing. Yeah. Right. Um, you're utilizing DNA. You're not. You're not utilizing their personality or their education. You're not dating them. You're not. <laughs> you're not friends with them. You're. You know. X, Y, and Z. So you're utilizing DNA for the purpose of growing your family, and that's awesome. And not everybody chooses to go down this path. Um, some people do choose, and some people. Um, you know, might not have any other options. Um, But in comparison to, say, a heterosexual cis couple who, um, you know, maybe when they got together didn't necessarily think about, well, when we have future children, you know, what's your education, occupation, what's your genetic testing, what's your blood (laughs) type? You you don't necessarily go over those things. Um, Sure. Hey, I love planners. I'd love to meet someone who who approached their their long-term relationship that way. It'd be a really interesting conversation. (laughs) But that all being said, you know, when you find yourself searching for donor sperm, you get to be choosy. So be choosy. Yeah. Um, and you get to make decisions that um, are going to affect you and, and your growing family, which is really kind of exciting and can be somewhat overwhelming. Um, so keep in mind what it is that you're utilizing, utilizing DNA. And the things that can most closely be attributed to DNA are things like 
height, weight, hair color, eye color, skin tone, musculoskeletal structure, uh, athletic ability, um, to some degree music, musical ability, but things like personality and intelligence and occupation, then those aren't, there's no linear correlation to DNA. So, yeah, that's more, that's more nurture. Yeah, I mean, intelligence, what I like to tell, you know, there, there are some people who are born geniuses and, and they're savants and they're oftentimes they're usually on the spectrum, right? Those, those born, and there's nothing wrong yeah. with that. Those people are incredible. Um, but most people who are, have high levels of intelligence, it's more intelligence, it's, it's usually more education, like resources and opportunities than it was necessarily born genius. Yeah. Yeah. And some people make the best of those resources and opportunities. And, and, you know, some people like me maybe squandered it in their early life and then <laughs> started paying attention in, at university. So, <laughs> which is fine as well. Yeah, that's right. So the other thing I tell people is that, you know, if you, if you boil our company down to its most simple f- explanation or format, we're biological retail, but we're not selling shoes. And, and we're not Amazon, right? We, we, yeah. we help people make very serious decisions about their, the future of their family, possibly, you know, possibly. And we, you know, our client services team, for example, we know our donors, like I've already said, but we, we, we don't have any quotas. We don't, we don't have a bottom line. Their, their, their mission is not to push a donor on somebody. Their mission is to help somebody find the donor that's right for them yeah. And it's, it's more of a guiding and journey process than it is a, here's who you should use. We don't say, it's, you know, that, that's not what we say. We want to help you find the donor that you want. And if we can't help you, we'll say, you know, we don't have the donor that you're looking for at the moment. And just be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. And then say, you know, maybe, hey, we, maybe we've got a couple of people down the pike, but they're not. Yeah. We don't have them in program yet if you want to wait for the right one. That's right. So I would say the only other thing I'll add is, you know, to your question of what, what, what would you tell people is keep in mind what it is that you're utilizing. Know that we're not going to pick a donor for you. So come in with, with some criteria that you're looking for and we can kind of guide you and help you narrow down your list. And the last thing is once you've made your decision, don't second guess yourself. Once yeah. you've made your decision, feel great about it and move forward. Because otherwise yeah. the, the paradox of choice will get you every time. And, uh, you know, it's once you've made your choice, be confident, move on, because you've still got a whole journey ahead of you. So let, Yeah, let, that's just the first step. That's right. That's right. Um, so one thing that will come up for anyone when they're when they start looking at these donor profiles um, is one of the things that's always sort of at the top in this, the stats, so to speak. Um, I started to think about them like Pokemon cards. You gotta have them all. You gotta have them all. They're little like Pokemon stats is, um, CMV status. And that's something that I didn't know what that was when I started investigating all of this. So would you maybe explain a bit about what that means and what to be concerned, what, if anything, to be concerned about with that? That's a good question. I know you. There's like a really long answer you could give to that. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give the long answer in short form. Perfect. So CMV is cytomegalovirus. It is a herpes family virus, but it is not herpes. Uh, that you know, I mean, chickenpox for the common listener. Yeah. Chickenpox is a herpes family virus. Okay. Shingles. Shingles. All of that. Smallpox. Those are there's a wide variety of herpes family viruses. Okay. By age 65, 80, 80 plus percent of the population has been exposed to CMV. Uh, it, in, in adults or even in babies and children, in adults, in old people, it's a very mild virus. You might have, you know, a few spots that show up around your face or a sore neck and, and a slight congestion, but it goes away in a couple of days. However, it is one of the few viruses that can cross the, the blood placental barrier. And if you were to give a growing fetus an active CMV infection, it can have severe ramifications and consequences for the baby's growing brain. So that's why it's important. Now, that being said, here's what the FDA has to say about cytomegalovirus. Word for word from the legislation, or the regulation rather, it says, you must have a policy about CMV. That's 
very clear. Yeah. <laughs> what on earth does that mean? Like if you compare, you know, compares it to syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, or any of the other ones, right? It's going to say donor must test negative. Yeah. This one, you must have a policy, and that's because in the FDA's eyes, this re this uh, regulation is written for all tissue donors, right? Not just sperm donors, all tissue donors, organs, yeah. you know, kidneys, whatever. If an active CMV infection was given to a kidney don from kidney donor to kidney recipient, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. So that's why it's written that way. That's all to say that most we don't let any donor who tests positive with an active infection, they can't donate. They have to wait until their, their infection goes away. So in this world of the pandemic, you know, we're recording this post-pandemic. I think a lot of people have gotten a lot more comfortable with the idea of antibodies and what it means to have a virus be exposed to it, but have the antibodies against the virus so you don't get it anymore. So we can talk about it this way. Yeah, we got a crash course over the last two and a half years. Right? So donor, the way that we test for CMV is a donor, it, it's a total, the first test is a total antibody test, meaning have you been exposed at all to cytomegalovirus? If the total antibody test is negative, we assume you've never been exposed and we list that donor as CMV negative. If the donor comes back and the total antibody test is positive, it then reflexes to an IgG versus an IgM test. Uh, IgG stands for immunoglobulin G or immunoglobulin M. If the IgG antibodies come back after the reflex of positive, but the IgM is negative, we then say that it is then known that IgG antibodies are those antibodies that stick around so that you never get the virus again. Okay, if they have IgM antibodies, that means they have an active ongoing acute infection. And until those IgM antibodies come down, that donor can't donate. Yep. All right, so we don't- So good positive have any, and a bad type of positive. Yeah, exactly. We don't actually have any CMV positive donors. Yep. We have CMV IgG positive donors. Yep. Now, there's no risk to the baby if the donor, the growing fetus, if the donor is CMV IgG positive. But fertility clinics are all about success rates, as they should be. Their whole job is to help you get pregnant. And there has been some research uh, done in the late 90s and early 2000s that indicated that, well, if the male or the, the, the sperm provider is CMV positive, IgG positive, and the, the egg recipient, the woman is CMV IgG negative, that the, the woman's body might recognize those antibodies, because semen is, a, is an antibody rich material, there's lots of white blood cells in there. Yeah. Um, the, the woman's body might recognize the CMV IgG antibodies in the semen as foreign and launch an immune response and thus decrease the success rates of pregnancy. Yep. However, there's a million reasons why women can't get pregnant. Yes. And all of them are very sad and all of them are very frustrating. And to say that it's due to, I have several, these are way caus causation it's, versus correlation. You got it. Thing. And I've got thousands, literally more than a thousand. I don't, I don't have an exact number, but thousands of women who were CMV negative and have used a positive donor and had healthy babies. Yeah, but I get it, right? Like I understand the fertility clinics wanting to remove all variables. I do, but if by removing a variable, you they have essentially guided you to use your second favorite donor, that bothers me. Yeah, if you're a negative and you have a donor that you really like who's positive, and that's the only reason you don't use them, that might not. You know, it's good to have the knowledge. It's good to know why, or good to to know those things, but maybe don't let that be the, the main guiding factor. Right. And, and I'll say it, I'll say it a different way too, because, you know, some fertility clinics might think they have more degrees than Fahrenheit and think that they can argue with you and, and teach, you know, basically mansplain everything to you. And that bothers me too. Yeah. Um, but I would also say that you can push back and say, okay, fine. If my body might recognize those antibodies as foreign, then I'll just go, you know, and I understand this is an option for everybody, but I'll go the IVF route. Yeah. Because if I go IVF, you're literally going to put sperm and an egg in a petri dish, for lack of a better term, uh, you put it in a dish, and that sperm is going to fertilize that egg outside of my body, and then that embryo that's growing doesn't have antibodies associated with it. And you're going to put that embryo in my body. Would it even? I mean, even if you're doing, would it even affect you if you you're using a washed specimen, so the most of the semen is taken out? Yeah, I, 
I agree with your line of thinking. However, there hasn't been enough research done on that to refute. To, to, yeah. The, 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 the data and the statistics that they gathered on in, the, in those research articles in the late 90s and early 2000s, that was just done on random men across the United States. Yeah. Not necessarily washed semen. Sure. So we don't have data to refute that. So, okay, actually, that's a good question that I had forgotten to bring up earlier, um, is that uh, that's another thing that comes up when you're looking at uh, the donor profiles. It will show you how many vials are currently available and what type of vials. So one of the types of vials that come up are like washed versus unwashed, and then it'll say or IUI versus ICI versus IVF. So could you maybe explain a bit about the different types of vials and why you would choose one type over another? Yeah, so we have four types of vials. We have an IUI vial, ICI vial, IUI ART, ICI ART. The IUI and IUI ART vials are uh, processed the exact same way. They're washed and, and uh, they're both washed vial types. It's just that and the standard IUI vials are going to have 10 million modal cells or greater, and the IUI ART vials are going to have between 4 and 9 million total modal cells. So just a few less modal, modal, right. modal cells. That's right. And the standard, you know, the industry standard since like the 70s has been 10 million modal cells. Yeah. Uh, but and, and that's kind of still where we're at. Things move very slowly in this world. Um, <laughs> but, you know... IUI ART vials are, are used for both IUI treatments and IVF treatments. The IUI, the, the IUI vial type and IUI ART vial type are probably 97% of the vials that we distribute. Yep. The ICI vials and ICI, those are unwashed vials. They, they're, they're processed the exact same way. ICI vials uh, will have at least 15 million modal, uh, total modal cells, but it's an unwashed specimen and it will have to be washed basically for any treatment type that you're going to do except for home insemination. Yeah, and so for people who understand, ICI means intracervical insemination yep. versus intrauteral insemination. Correct. That's right. That's right. Um, so it's basically just, yeah, are you doing it at home and you are just sort of, well, this is kind of a gross term, but like turkey basting yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or, or are you going into a doctor's office and they're actually like inserting it up past your um, cervix, cervix and, and in, directly into the uterus? That's right. And the ICI, you know, the ICI specimens—they're not used. They're not used all that commonly. And we prepare most of our. First off, it's hard to prepare an ICI specimen. It sounds easy because it's unwashed. It sounds like yeah, we just get the specimen and add a freeze media to it and freeze it down. Well, the problem is, is that if you add freeze media to an unprocessed, unwashed, you know, uh, specimen, that dilutes it. And by yeah. diluting it, you end up with a, a dilute sample that you can't use. Sure. So the donor has to have the right volume to cell ratio. And and that's why you guys pre-screen for that at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. And in general, IUI specimens, whether standard IUI or IUI ART specimens, they can be used for all the same treatment types that ICI can be. And they're a better specimen. They're washed and ready to go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that's great. It's good understanding the um, art distinction as well i'd uh i'd reached out to your support team to be like what's the art thing is this the, are these the artsy vials i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah no uh, art stands for assisted reproductive technologies and they're just lower in concentration and oftentimes they'll be used for treatments like ivf or ICSI. but we've had several people use iui art vials for an iui um uh, treatment type and have successful pregnancies and births yeah, I think that's just where you'd make that distinction based on the, you know, tests that you do before your pre-insemination tests with your fertility clinic and see sort of if there's anything that might prevent you from getting pregnant, maybe go for a non-art vial or ART vial. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, cool. So the last, I think one of the last questions I have for you is... Um, uh, a big concern for me, and I, I think this has been a concern for other people as well, is that I want to have multiple pregnancies and I'd prefer to use the same donor for yeah. all of the pregnancies. So that then brings me to a bunch of questions around how many vials to purchase and when. And I'm wondering if those answers might diff be slightly different when you're using 
the Seattle sperm bank, because you guys have such a good relationship with donors, um, is it maybe like, oh, maybe, maybe you don't have to buy all the vials up front and we could just reach out to the donor and ask if they'd be willing to donate more? Or could you speak a little bit about sort yeah. of how many vials to think about purchase per pregnancy and then how you think about pre-planning? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish... I wish my answer honestly could be this, and you might think I'm lying, but I really do. Uh, I, I wish you could just buy one or two vials and come back a year later or two years later, and that donor would still be here. Yeah. A lot has changed since June 2020, a lot. Um, and I don't have a good reason for it. Maybe the great I mean, sperm shortage. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the pandemic just made people reevaluate their lives and their family planning uh, and decided that, you know, they wanted to move forward with their, their growing their family, but. You know, I've been doing this for 12 years, and I've never seen the demand surge like it did starting in June 2020. Yep. And, you know, if I'll list a donor on a Monday morning, and he's gone by Monday afternoon. And, and granted, you know, that's just their first release. You know, the FDA, yeah. the FDA mandates that every donated specimen has to sit in a six-month quarantine, and then we can release that specimen or specimens um, six months or later after we do follow-up blood testing to make sure that there's no change in infectious disease history. Oh, so, I was like, that's weird. Why would they make you sit? It's not yeah. wine. It doesn't age. <laughs> right. So, you know, let's say, you know, donor 9999 um, comes into the program on January. We're just going to do this for easy math. January 1st, he starts donating uh, and he keeps donating, keeps donating. And he has a six month physical and blood draw in July. Okay. Well, if he has his blood draw on July 1st, that means we can release everything from January 1st or older, which at that point, yep. since he started on January 1st, we're going to release nothing. So then let's say we do another blood draw in August 1st. Well, six months minus August 1st is February 1st. So now I can release everything from January 1st to February 1st. Yep. And then when he has his blood draw in December 1st, then I can release everything from June 1st back to February 1st. So we, we keep releasing more and more specimens after sub subsequent blood draws. But what, what inevitably has happened now is say donor 99 has his first release. So I put him up on a Monday morning. He sells out by Monday afternoon. And then I leave him up on the website for a little bit and his wait list grows to 20, 30 people. Then we pull him off the website because his wait list is getting too long and it's not even, you know, satisfiable. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy. And so yep. to your question, no, unfortunately we, my best recommendation, if you want to have multiple children with the same donor is buy as many vials as financially feasible right from the get go. Yeah. I think the statistic was you on average you need about three vials per I, successful IUI round. Yeah, it just depends on your age too. Uh, so yeah. think, you know, thirty two and thirty two and a half and younger, it's like you know just under four vials on average, and yep. thirty two and a half and older, it's it's you know between five and six. Yeah. That makes sense. And like the word, the, th the last thing you want to have happen, right. Is you really fall in love with the donor. You have a successful first pregnancy it's the and you've only got one vial left for a second pregnancy and that doesn't work. Yeah, it's the absolute worst conversation that, that I, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time on the phones anymore, but that I've had to have with people where, you know, we had our first child two years ago with donor, um, one, two, three, four, and we'd really like to have a full sibling for our child. And to have to tell them that this donor doesn't have any vials available, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, one of the other benefits about choosing Seattle Sperm Bank is you guys actually have less expensive vials than, we do. than a lot of the other, at least U.S.-based companies. We do, yeah. We we are more affordable than any of the, our major competitors. There are some other smaller sperm banks that are great organizations, and, and they're a little bit cheaper than we are. Um, but, you know, in, in comparison to some of the, the, the major three, like, CCB or Fairfax or Zytex, we're, we're, we, our vials are more cost affordable than they are. So let's say, um, you know, let's say I buy 12 vials or whatever it might be. Sure. Um, what do I do? So how many of those vials would I then get shipped to my fertility clinic right out the gate for a first pregnancy versus <laughs> do I keep the rest of them with you? Do yeah. those hang out in my freezer? You know, like what, what yeah. happens with the yeah, definitely not your They need to be stored in liquid nitrogen at at least 100 negative, uh, negative 180 degrees Celsius. So very, yeah, very, my very freezer cool. doesn't do that. Yeah, no, no. And if it did, I'd have to question about what you do in your, your spare time. Um, <laughs> all that being said, you know, the, how many do you want to ship to your clinic? Whatever your clinic tells you. You know, if they say, hey, we're going to 
start your IUI treatment and we want to have you ship two or three vials out for your subsequent IUI attempts month after month after month. Um, you can do that. You can ship one out at a time. You can ship 12 out. It's, it's whatever. I, I would say that our storage costs are much more affordable than your fertility clinic, most likely. Yeah. Um, and if they're still stored here with us and it's within two years since the original purchase date of the vial or vials, and you decide you don't want to use those vials anymore and they've never left our facility, then we'll buy them back at 50% of the original purchase price. Hey, look at that. But if they leave our That's facility, they're not eligible. Yeah, because you can't, then you've lost chain of custody. You don't know how that vial's been treated. And, you got it. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So I guess my, my I, I did lie. I said that was my last question. I have <laughs> one more question for you. Um, so if somebody's doing that, because unfortunately, even with the fact that you guys are cheaper and whatnot, um, purchasing gametes is not the le least expensive thing on the planet. Um, and I'm very lucky in that the new job that I took I, has actually has fertility benefits. So they'll cover the cost of my, um, my purchase, which is pretty great, That's but cool. most it's really cool. Um, but most companies don't offer that. So do you have any sort of, um, support or recommendations for people who might need financial assistance with purchasing vials? Yeah. So, um, we have uh, on our website, some information about companies that you can do financing through. Mm -hmm. We don't own these companies. Uh, we have no kickback or association or like partnership with these companies, but they, they're, they're reputable companies who will help people uh, receive financing to buy sperm vials or undergo fertility treatment. Uh, yep. Information can be found on our website under the, the Why Use Us and under services. And a lot of, uh, you know, there, there's been quite a few families and recipients who have utilized those financing services to uh, start this journey. And it's been great for them. Yeah, it's one of the, I guess, most interesting and also sort of heartbreaking things for me as I've been going through this experience and trying to learn as much as I can is that there is sort of a uncomfortable socioeconomic conversation that goes along with it, where a lot of these things, even if you're doing it sort of as cheaply as possible and you're doing home insemination and whatnot, it, you're, it's, it's still... Uh, it's still very expensive to get pregnant anyway, other than the, you know, sort of standard way. <laughs> it really is. Uh, you're not wrong there. And, you know, we try to keep our prices as reasonable as, as, reasonable as possible. Um, but there's, there's no way of getting around the conversation that it does cost. Not only does purchasing sperm or eggs cost money, but you know your the fertility treatments uh, also cost money, and there's a huge range of treatment prices depending on uh, the amount of uh, technical complexity of the treatment. So it's unfortunately, you know having a family and wanting a family uh, can be stunted by the financial you know barriers. Yeah, at least with a place like Seattle Sperm Break, you really see the value of what you're getting for that purchase. You know, like everything that you've just described, there's it's so intensive for a donor to get into the program. They're coming back multiple times, not just to make donations, but to do blood draws, to all of these things. You can really understand why the price is what yeah. it is. Absolutely, and, and that's that's our goal. Like you know, another one of my. Uh, MOs or missions for a company is that is transparency, right? So um, you're either going to be a victim or a participant in transparency. Um, yeah. And you get to choose what you're going to do. So we, we'd much rather participate uh, in transparency. And, and yes, I, I would hope that those who choose, who choose to utilize one of our donors do, do, does see the value in what it is that they're utilizing. Fantastic. Well, Angelo, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, for for the listeners out there, this is the the second interview I've done with Angelo. I interviewed him before, and sadly the the audio got garbled. So he was incredibly gracious to give me another hour of his very precious time. So I really, really appreciate you participating. Oh, ha happy to do it. Before I let you go, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you? like to say to obviously my uh listener base is most likely going to be people who are considering sure. becoming single yeah. mothers or my friends and family <laughs> <laughs> what i would say is you know especially as you know single mothers i think sometimes um, finding the support that you're going to need um not only as a, a, a sperm searcher <laughs> but also, <laughs> you know 
the support that you're going to need as you your family grows, um, it can be overwhelming. And so, you know, don't let don't let this part of the process overwhelm you. Know that we're here to help. Know that you know we'll do uh, our customer service team and client service. They'll go above and beyond to make sure that you know that we're here. We're in your corner, uh, at least for this part of the process. And, and then, like I said, there's a whole other journey ahead of you. So if it feels overwhelming, know that you don't, you, for this part of the process, you don't have to do it alone. Uh, let us help. I love that. Yeah. Why not? It's the help is there. Why not utilize it? Yep. Well, thank you again so much. I really appreciate your, your time, Angelo, and uh, very excited for people to be able to hear all of this good information. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for letting me uh, join you today. Thank you. I hope you liked that episode with Angelo and the Seattle Sperm Bank. It was incredibly educational to me and they have just been a joy to work with so far. If you are interested in learning more about them, you can get in touch with them at seattlespermbank.com or follow them on Instagram at seattlespermbank. Their customer service team is really incredible. I can't speak more highly of them. So if you have questions, if you're feeling overwhelmed, please reach out to them. They're a great resource for you. Please also be sure to share the podcast with anyone who you think might be interested. Give us a like and a subscribe. Um, It really helps us get in front of the right people. You can send me a message and request a podcast topic or ask for a question answered at independentparenthood.com or you can follow me on Instagram at independentparenthood, uh, sorry, at the Plan A podcast. And uh, I will be on vacation for a couple weeks um, before I actually get started with insemination. So very excited for that. So it'll be a couple weeks till the next episode. Um, but until then, keep writing in with any questions. Look forward to speaking to you later. Bye.